So today we're continuing our series looking at what it means to live in a world where there's not any normal, it seems. Um, if, you, if you lived in a normal world, you, you wouldn't be criticized or rejected or mistreated for doing good. In a normal world, that wouldn't happen. But sometimes the world is not normal. And in the book of First Peter, um, we learn how to respond when we are rejected for doing good. So we'll hear now uh, reading from First Peter chapter 2, a couple of different selections from that chapter that reminds us sometimes the world isn't normal. How are we called to respond because of who Christ is? Donna Randolph will do our scripture reading for the day. Maybe. Um, there we go. This morning's scripture reading is 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12 and 21 through 25. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let's take a moment and pause and ask for God's help in hearing his word today. Lord, um, we can be so easily distracted by a thousand things this morning, uh, weighed down by burdens and sorrows. We could be tempted, tempted to believe that we are too far from you to even bother trying to listen to your word. Tempted to believe that we've got it all figured out already, so we don't really need to hear what you're saying. Holy Spirit, would you come and help us to hear? Help us to listen beyond all the distractions and, and through all the temptations. And to hear the voice of our Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, student loan repayment. That could be worth a lot of money. 
$38,000 for college if you haven't been yet. A $40,000 enlistment bonus. Apparently, someone's trying to motivate us to do something pretty hard. When they start promising huge incentives like that, you know that the thing they're asking you to do is tough, right? Nobody has to motivate me very hard to eat fried chicken. Nobody has to motivate me very hard to to eat Thanksgiving dinner. But if you have to start saying, hey, I'll I'll pay off up to $100,000 worth of your student debt. I'll put $40,000 in your pocket right now. You're trying to get me to do something pretty tough. Those incentives are pretty big, right? Uh, In this case, it's the Army trying to get us to sign up. And they know they're asking people to do something hard, right? Give us four years of your life when you pretty much give up everything and, and we tell you what to do, where to be, how to do it, when to do it. And you don't get to object and you don't get to leave and we may ask you to lay down your life. We're asking you to do something really hard, so we have to give you a big motivation, big incentive to do it. You see some similar logic in the words that we heard this morning from 1 Peter. God is calling us to do something incredibly hard. The way we know it's really hard is by paying attention to the the incentives, the motivations he gives us for doing it. Listen to verses 9 and 10 again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to me, a people for his own possession. You are the people that that God called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are his people. Once you hadn't received mercy from him, but now you received mercy. Rehearsing all these promises that that encapsulate scripture passages from Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, all those things God promised to his people, they are for anyone who trusts Jesus. That's who you are. I got to tell you who you are in all these incredible ways because I'm getting ready to ask you to do something very difficult. We see the same thing Later, as we get to this description of Jesus, all the weight of Jesus' suffering, what he accomplished for us, to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you. Listen to what he accomplished for us. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The tree here is a metaphor for the cross. By his wounds, you have been healed. The weight of Jesus' accomplishment for us and the weight of Jesus' example. Christ suffered for you, verse 21 says, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. All of this is being heaped up to motivate us to do something really difficult. And then on top of it all, we're told in verse 25 that Jesus did all of this for us while we were straying from him and treating him like he was a stranger to us. You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Be motivated to do something really hard 
Um, heard a story recently, you may have heard it too, about a man who did something really hard. His name is Jamil. Uh, you see Jamil on the left here, and on the right is Andrew. Andrew used to be a police officer in Michigan, and he framed Jamil. He accused Jamil of some awful things that Jamil had not done. Jamil went to jail for four years, perfectly innocent. We know that because Andrew said so later. He later said, I made it all up. It was all a lie. Fast forward four years, the end of that sentence, Jamil is out of jail, Andrew is out of job. And they both connect through a Christian ministry that helps people find employment. Andrew recognized Jamil and knew immediately they had to apologize for ruining this man's life. He did so, and Jamil said, I forgive you. His faith in Christ enabled him to forgive this man. And now, for realsies, they are best friends. They don't just pose for the camera for a few feel-good shots. They spend a lot of time together. Jamil endured punishment that he did not deserve so that in the end, he could set his affection on the one who had caused it. How incredible is this. This is what we're being told about the Lord Jesus here in 1 Peter. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. All of God's judgment was set on Jesus so that all of God's love could be set on us. That, that ought to motivate us. That ought to give us incentive for a new kind of living. That, that can prepare us to do hard things, hard things like forgiving people who have destroyed our lives. God is calling us to do something really hard. We know that because he's piling up all these strong motives. He has chosen us. We are his people. And in order to make us his people, he sent the Lord Jesus to rescue us when we were straying from him to be our best friend forever. So what's the hard thing that he's calling us to do? It's this. Hold on to a lifestyle that's distinctive but not vindictive. Distinctive. Listen to verses 11 and 12 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, you live here in this world. It's not really your home. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There are kinds of desires that you want, but if you were to follow up with them, on them, it would be bad for you and bad for other people. They are waging war against the health and well-being of you. Abstain from those things. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the nations where you live, honorable. That word keep 
literally means hold on. Hang on to it. Hold on to it. Don't let go of this distinctive lifestyle. How distinctive? So distinctive that people who speak against you as evildoers would see your good deeds and give glory to God. Remember we said sometimes the world isn't normal, and sometimes when you do good, people speak evil of you and see you as evildoers. The logic in 1 Peter is that sometimes our allegiance to Jesus is going to call us to refrain from and abstain, the verb from verse 11, from some of the things that seem normal in this world, and other people who see us pulling back from that will speak evil against us. Peter knew what he was talking about. His life was taken by the emperor Nero. Around the time that Peter was killed by Nero, a fire burned down a lot of the city of Rome. And um, Nero was looking for someone to blame it on. He blamed it on Christians. There was no evidence that Christians had anything to do with this fire, but they were a convenient scapegoat. One Roman historian speaks of it this way. He says, an immense multitude of Christians was convicted But they were convicted not so much of the crime of burning the city down. It was easy to convict them of that because they were guilty of something worse. The Roman Empire looked at these early Christians as people who hated mankind. If you're already guilty of hatred of mankind, then we don't have to use our imaginations too much to say it's your fault the city burned down. That's the kind of of being spoken against that verse 12 has in mind. Sometimes people will speak against you as evildoers because your allegiance to Jesus means that you're now living by a new system of values and customs that used to seem very comfortable and familiar to you, but now that you're following Jesus, you're not at home in that system of values and customs anymore. And what's it going to lead to? Well, it's going to lead to sometimes your neighbors not being able to make sense of who you are and what you're doing. So they will speak evil against you. And sometimes your neighbors will see your allegiance to Jesus and recognize it as good. That, that tension, right, in verse 12. On the one hand, they will speak against you as evildoers. On the other hand, they will see your good deeds. Living in that tension creates pressure. And Peter is saying, don't give in to that pressure. Hold on. Hold on to this lifestyle that is distinctive. Distinctive enough that sometimes people will look at it and say, you must be haters of mankind. You are evildoers. Distinctive enough that sometimes people people will look and say, you know, usually I think you're an evildoer, but... Now I recognize some of the good that you're doing. And when we're treated like that, responding in a way that's not vindictive, that's where Peter goes, isn't it? He he goes to the example of Jesus. He doesn't go straight there. He takes a side stop to talk about politics, and then he takes a side stop to talk about slavery. Why aren't we talking about those things today? Give me time. 
sermon series on gospel and government is coming up in the fall, and a sermon series on what the Bible has to say about slavery and what that means for justice today. A group of friends and I are preparing a, an eight, maybe ten week sermon series for the spring on that. I'm asking several of my African-American friends to help me prepare that series. And I'm hoping that by the spring, those who are from out of town will have freedom to travel here and be with us. Maybe without masks. So hang on, we'll get to those parts. For today, we're going to jump straight to this idea of a distinctive lifestyle that is not vindictive. When he was insulted, he did not insult people in return. Peter tells us about Jesus. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The lifestyle we're called to live because of our allegiance to Jesus will sometimes mean that we are treated badly and misunderstood. And we're being told here, that's okay. Distinctive lifestyle, but it's not vindictive. Think again of the impact that the work of Jesus had on the life of Jamil. How easy it would be to respond with vengeance and retaliation to this crooked officer who set you up and to find strength in Christ to not only forgive but befriend. The world is going to sit up and take notice when we live like that. I think you're kind of crazy, but man, that's a kind of good that I don't get to see very often. That's what we're called to because of Jesus. Where are we going to feel that conflict? Where are we going to feel this tension? The distinctive values and customs. I'm borrowing that phrase from a, a scholar on 1 Peter. Where are some of those? I sat down this week and made a list of 12. Don't pass out. We're only going to talk about three. Okay? But, but 12 of these areas just jumped out immediately. So let's talk about just a few. Here's one. The world we live in has this value. This is a custom. This is a, way, this is a way our world lives and works, right? If I find it entertaining, it must be good for me. That's kind of an unwritten assumption about a whole lot of modern life. And the closer technology gets to you at every moment, the more the screens abound and the easier it is to access them, the more this value gets written into life. If I find it entertaining, it must be good for me. But Christians, because of our allegiance to Jesus, we, we lean into this in a different way. We say, you know what? Jesus is a better judge of what's good for me than I am. And so that means sometimes I'm going to, I'm going to use the verb again from verse 11, abstain from some things that I find, frankly, very entertaining. But Jesus says they're not good for me. And I trust him more than I trust my own judgment. So sometimes I'm going to do that. Sometimes I'm going to devote some time that, that, that my neighbors might say, hey, man, that's your time. That's entertainment time. I'm going to devote some of that entertainment time to pursuing Jesus. 
whether that's through prayer or through scripture or through worship. We won't make the same choices as our neighbors about entertainment because of our allegiance to Jesus. But we don't have to be vindictive about that. We, we don't have to hurl bombs at people who disagree with us about these issues. Jesus didn't respond that way to people who misunderstood him. We shouldn't either. How about a second? This one's going to be harder. I'll go ahead and tell you. Some of you, when you read this next one, you're going to get mad or you're going to be really hurt. If it's part of my identity, I can't change it. And it's wrong of anyone to ask me to. I told you, it might hurt and it might make you mad. This is one of the values of the world that we live in. And fundamentally, it's correct. If your identity were in Christ the way it ought to be, then there's no need to change it. If, if you were fully rooted in the love of the God who made you, then there would be nothing to change. But we aren't. We're broken. We're fallen. We are, we're twisted. And we need someone to make us right again. And that means that that means that we're, we're not good at defining our own identity. And as believers in Jesus, one of the first things that we learn to do is to say, Jesus, I don't get to say who I am anymore. I don't get to say what's most important about me anymore. You do. I am yours. You define my identity now. And he is going to ask me and you and every person who follows him to fight really hard to make some changes in areas that we would really rather not change at all. And that applies to every person who's a disciple of Jesus. Now, saying all that sounds a bit like trying to pick a fight with the city we live in to pick a fight with our neighbors, some of our classmates, some of our co-workers, some of our friends, some of our family members. What we're doing is trying to live out our allegiance to Jesus. And say, Jesus, you, you shape my identity now. And you may ask me to fight hard to pursue change in some areas that are really painful and uncomfortable. And then we have to live that out in a way that's not vindictive toward people who disagree with us. If you don't have faith in Jesus, I understand that this perspective may sound really foreign to you. If you do have faith in Jesus, but your thinking about these things has been shaped more by voices other than that of Jesus, this may not make sense. And I can understand that. But if we do this right, then, then the way I love you, even if we disagree over whether identity is in the hands of Jesus, 
the way I love you ought to win respect for him. My thought, my practice can be different from yours, distinctive, but I don't have to be vindictive toward anybody who disagrees over these things. Can you imagine? Pardon me. New watch, alarm going off, really irritating in the middle of a sermon. All right, how about one more? Same disclaimer as before. Might make you mad, might make you sad, might make you uncomfortable. But this is pretty obvious, isn't it? There, there may be no more obvious point of tension between the values and customs of Christians and the values and customs of the world we live in than in sexual ethics. And I don't mention this because, you know, I, I feel like it's some thing I have to pound every once in a while or they'll take away my pastor card. I mention it because we're talking about distinctive lifestyle. And it's just pretty obvious. Our world says sex is good, but commitment's optional. The commitment to, to marry one another, to, to maintain a lifetime bond, that's optional. The sex part's good, but the marriage part's optional. Or the commitment to becoming parents. It's, it's almost like there's no connection between sexuality and parenthood in, in, in a lot of the ways that we behave and think. Allegiance to Jesus makes us rethink all that. Jesus tells us that relationships are holy. Somebody asks, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, I got two things for you, and they both have to do with relationship. Love God, love your neighbor. Every relationship is holy. Holy means it has great power to be a blessing and bring good into this world if you handle it right. And if you handle it wrong, it's got great power to curse and bring pain. And our allegiance to Jesus makes us take every relationship seriously. Friendship whether same-sex friendships or friendships with someone who's of the opposite sex. It makes us take marriage seriously. It makes us take the parent-child relationship seriously. Allegiance to Jesus makes us take the parent-child relationship seriously after the child is born and before the child is born. Commitment. Commitment to becoming parents, even if we don't think we are ready to? That's hard, and it seems out of touch with the world that we live in. As Christians, we're holding all these things up to Jesus, and we're saying, we trust your judgment about these things more than we trust our own. Can I say it? Because these relationships are so serious, it is not wrong to think carefully about whether you are ready for marriage or parenting. But I think that under the influence of this value of our culture, that commitment is optional, some Christian people are fearing commitment in a way that's not healthy. 
It is not wrong to think carefully about whether you're ready to be married. It is not wrong, if you're married, to think carefully about whether you're ready to become a parent. But don't overthink it. Don't be afraid of these things. You won't be alone. Jesus is with us. This is a distinctive way of thinking about these things, very different from what our society believes. So different that we might sometimes be accused of being haters of humanity. Our calling is to live out our allegiance to Jesus, and that means that even if we are so accused and, and mistreated for doing what Jesus says is good, we won't be vindictive. He wasn't. So we don't have to be either. And that's where all of this is grounded. You remember we said at the very beginning, God is calling us to do something incredibly hard, but he's motivating us to do it by something even better. And here's how I would summarize it. You are loved by God even when you are rejected by people. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Can I ask one more time? Can you let it sink in? That God says, you are a chosen race. I have set my love on you. Even if everyone else rejects you, I love you because of what my son has done. You are loved by God even when you are rejected by people. That's the foundation that all of this rests on. Impossible to live a distinctive lifestyle but not be vindictive toward others who don't appreciate it unless it's built on this foundation. How do we know that? We saw it in Jesus, verse 23. When he was threatened, when he was insulted, when he was suffering, what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He kept trusting his father. Father, right now I'm being rejected by people. I am literally being crucified. I am being told I am nothing. I am being told I am worthless. I am being humiliated, stripped, beaten, nailed to a cross. But you love me, I will keep trusting myself to you. Because even when everyone is rejecting me, I trust your love. We can do a hard thing in town. We can live a life that's very distinctive from the world we live in but without responding with a vindictive mentality when we are misunderstood or mistreated. We can do that hard thing because of the hard thing that Jesus has already done for us. We're going to need help. Let's stop and ask for it. Lord Jesus, before we asked for help hearing 
the Father's voice speaking from the Scriptures. Now we ask for help doing what we have heard. One of the things we have heard is that we're called to a lifestyle that's hard. But we've also heard that we're called to joy as we trust you and all that you are and all that you have done. Give us strength and courage now to do what you have called us to. We pray in your name. Amen.